0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, hogan Lovell's life sciences and healthcare podcast. Today, we sit down with the A. Wright, Jane Summerfield and Heinz Fandenbos to talk about the developments regarding COVID-19 and their jurisdictions and how the authorities are handling it up to this point. In addition, they also talk about how the proceedings can potentially look like after the pandemic. As always, I'm trying to keep the intro short, as we're going to hear each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk
1: the cure.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to this podcast. Purpose is to provide an update of our experience on the guidance and structure and approach by both the at both European level, EU level, and at national level in the individual member states. My name is Elizabeth Anne Wright. I am a partner in the Brussels office in the life science practice, advising clients in the regulation of
1: medicinal products and medical devices. Jane, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, EA. I'm Jane Summerfield. I'm a partner in London. Uh, also, in our global regulatory practice covering life sciences, regulatory, and commercial matters. Uh, and Hein. Thanks. My name is
0: Hein van den Bos. I'm a partner in our life sciences regulatory practice based in Amsterdam.
1: This
2: podcast is really going to be, as far as we can, an exchange of our experience on how the type of issues that are being addressed. And the way that the EU institutions and the member states are addressing this, we are in a situation that is previously unknown. We are in completely new waters. The procedures and the approaches of the authorities change by the day, if not by the hour. And we are seeing changes. Just uh, yesterday, we saw a change here in Belgium that in very exceptional circumstances, the Belgian authorities will permit the sterilization of what are, in principle, single use masks. But this is a very exceptional circumstance. It is surrounded by caution in the way that the authorities are addressing an issue that needs to be addressed to uh, resolve a shortage, but keeping in mind the potential risks that that relates to the user and indeed for the future. Potential liability. If you, as a manufacturer, create a single use device and someone, on the basis of extraordinary circumstances and extraordinary guidance, recycle or re sterilize, reuse that device, how do you address an issue in the future of potential liability? While we are now unquestionably in a, ne- a time when these exceptional measures need to be taken, there remains an important point of ensuring that if you do provide products in the present situation that are not fully compliant with the applicable rules, that you do also have an exit strategy of how to ensure that the devices or medicinal products are used only in the short term, only during this procedure, this pandemic, and that you have measures in place as far as possible to either recall the products or have them destroyed, or in some way ensure that they do not get into the normal commercial or
1: medical or clinical chain.
2: Jane, have you had any experience of this yet?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the, in the UK, we've seen a number of, of companies applying with products that are uh, either C-marked for, a, so medical devices C-marked for a different purpose, or medical devices that are approved in the US, but not yet C-marked in the UK. Things like personal protective equipment that may not necessarily meet European standards as well and also lots of issues around things like clinical trials and and medicines and off-label use for example the, the MHRA here so our UK regulator has actually been very proactive in putting helpful guidance out I think they're um, their query lines were very overwhelmed in the first few days. So they've they've helpfully put out lots of, of guidance. Um, and it's not just points to think about, but it's very practical guidance as to how to apply dedicated email addresses for doing so, what information they expect to see in the email, um, what they may ask you for, the different criteria. So that there's a lot of really useful information in there, which is making things a lot easier for manufacturers to try to, to navigate in the UK. How How do they approach this? Who do they contact? What information do they need to provide?
2: And Hein, what about the Netherlands?
0: Yeah, so, I, th- you know, in the Netherlands, I think a bit similar to, to what EA explained about Belgium, the Dutch authorities have allowed for some flexibility and exceptions to regular regulatory requirements, allowing, for example, medical devices and personal protection equipment to be brought onto the Dutch market from outside of the EU, where those products did not meet or not fully meet EU requirements, such as the CE mark. It is noted that those are exceptional situations where the authorities allow it. Right after that was announced, there was a large story around the press that certain products brought in from China that were not in accordance with all EU requirements, but supposedly in accordance with certain other standards, they were distributed to hospitals in the Netherlands, who then found out that at least in their view, the products were not compliant with those other standards either, which prompted the Dutch authorities to order a recall. So I think that does show, you know, on the one hand, Yes, some flexibility and and the the urgent need for getting certain products to patients also if they don't comply with EU standards. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that everything is allowed and authorities will still have a close look and may even order a recall.
2: So that makes me... The the issue of access by patients leads me to another thought. If companies are conducting clinical trials at the moment, um, we have already encountered situations where the trial has to be paused because the sites are closed or the product is unavailable. Um, Hain, how do you feel the European Commission's guidance on clinical trials is effective? Do you feel that it, it is providing the kind of guidance that we need? So in my
0: view, it doesn't give very practical hands-on guidance. I think it's more of a tool to you know help you start thinking about things that you may need to do. Um, in my view the European Commission's guidance is relatively high level and, and general and it would be helpful to look at member state guidance which increasingly is in place too across the countries for more practical advice.
1: So we've seen that here in, in the UK and I, I know I know Italy has um, has some really practical guidance where the MHRA here is, is giving quite specific informations to what needs to be documented, what needs to be notified to the MHRA. They've been quite flexible. Um, and saying things that would previously have been substantial amendment notifications are not provided they're documented correctly. So that there's quite a lot of pragmatic um, sense being applied here. But at the same time, with the overriding concern of patient safety still remaining. So you know, where there are significant patient safety issues, they still do need to be escalated. I don't know what you're seeing in, in Belgium. Is so that's quite similar, Yeah,
2: It is the... uh, The Belgian authorities, in reflecting on their approach in many areas, are being very pragmatic. They took the European Commission guidance and they actually very quickly produced their own guidance. Now, it is particularly related to how to provide the medicinal product to the patient. And they have very specific instructions about how the shipment should be conducted, ensuring traceability, ensuring the patients are trained on administration, which is You know, that's never going to be a simple thing for a patient, a vulnerable patient. It requires clear guidance, how to store the product, instructions to caregivers, very pragmatic instructions related to the medicinal product. How this is going to impact the ongoing trial when the pandemic ends and how it's documented, and how the how this is incorporated into the results of a clinical trial is, of course, another matter. That uh, I think that's something I, I would certainly advise any sponsor of a clinical trial to carefully document every step that they take to take account of that uh, when they are
1: collecting and reporting the results of the clinical trials. Yeah, that's interesting. Hein, have you seen much in the way of of new clinical trials starting in the Netherlands?
0: I haven't seen much. Um... Really, no. Um, I have seen, of course, the sort of reports from from EMA and local authorities that that they clearly encourage companies, of course, to contact them to reach out early. That they're open for you know getting clinical trials approved quickly, and also EMA for you know for product approval. Ultimately, also say you know come to us for scientific advice. We'll offer that free of charge. Come early. So I think there's a you know authorities across Europe, across member states, including EMA, clearly welcome new clinical trials and, and want to help companies think about that and facilitate things.
1: That's interesting. So we, we, have, had a, we have had some in the UK already approved, um, even within the last few weeks relating to COVID-19. So there, there are a few examples um, already of, of where trials have been approved on an extremely accelerated basis.
2: And have there been any particular conditions or imposed with those clinical trials?
1: Not that's been um, sort of made known outside of the protocol and, and the clinical trial authorization. Now, yes, that's very interesting. to See how things are evolving so quickly.
0: I was thinking, of, so we're talking about sort of EU level guidance and, and then EU member state guidance. Um, Jane, how do you view all of this in the view of Brexit? do, do you see the UK? Sort of still looking at EU level guidance as well, or do you see them, you know, more and more take a separate approach? Do you have any views on that?
1: So, so actually, the MHRA has been so quick in producing guidance that that much of it has predated um, the European level guidance. It's been it's been consistent. um, To what extent that's been a conscious decision or not isn't really clear. But the UK certainly hasn't been taking a different approach. But because it's been getting more into the detailed um, sort of pragmatic level of, of what people need to do, what notifications, how this should actually work in practice. Um, much of it has sort of superseded the EU guidance which has often come a bit later but but also it's built on the details. So as you were saying, lots of, lots of the EU guidance has been very much principles. So I, I wouldn't say we're doing anything inconsistent, but equally there hasn't been a case of waiting for the EU guidance to come out and then building UK on top the UK has has sort of gone ahead and produced its own national guidance.
2: So we've talked about the procedures that are reflecting the actions, approaches by the member states that are reflecting the EU approach. Um, have either of you seen any inconsistencies in between the member states? One of the things I'm thinking about is, again, and it's very pragmatic, practical approach, the Belgian authorities have banned the use of certain types of rapid diagnostic tests. And the reason that they have done so is because they are concerned that they're self-tests and they are concerned that the patient may not be able to really understand how to conduct the test, how to read the results and they have also decided to postpone the use of antibody detection tests again to do because of the the question on the suitability of the test for detection of COVID-19. And um, have you seen either if you've seen uh, an approach like that in your countries?
1: So I was going to say, from the UK perspective, it hasn't been sort of banning of tests so much, but but tests that have been approved in in other markets, such as the US, for example, um, are still being highly scrutinized here, particularly in relation to the re- reliability of the testing outcome. And there's a particular focus on that here um, you know, for obvious reasons of um, if a test is approved but it's not as reliable as believed, then that will also have knock-on consequences. So there's a real sensitivity here around trying to get tests approved quickly but making sure you know, that the level of reliability is very high before that happens.
2: And hey, Hayne, have you seen anything particular in the other approach? Not really, no. So is it, for either of you, Have we is a test has it been developed is it coming soon do we have any idea of, of how things are being progressing in that area
0: no so i i haven't i haven't really seen much on tests here
1: so here, here there's lot there's lots being looked at but in terms of, of getting them through no um you know, there, there's been uh it's certainly been a, a sort of media focus in in the uk um around our sort of testing capacities Um, and what's being stated to be possible and and what's actually being possible and sort of the the potential mismatch between those, part of which, um, there there are a number of reasons for it, but but part of which is also making sure that where a test is is authorised and is bought on on a large scale, that it's actually going to do the job that's needed.
2: So we are now, as I said at the beginning, in a very unusual, unprecedented situation. In four or five months from now, what do you think we will have learned from the experience of the moment in relation to the regulation and supply of products to treat patients, uh, I don't want to, to, to particularly focus on either of the one or other of them. But um, I, I'd like to start with you, Hain, from a, as an EU member state. Do you think that that there will be a that this the experiences that we're having now will influence the approach adopted by the authorities in the future?
0: I do think so. And of course, we, we don't know what exactly will happen, but I, I think one of the topics that will really gain attention is sort of supply chain management, continuous supply, having sufficient stock of both medical devices and medicinal products. You know, you see the, the EU authorities and the EU member state authorities looking at that. They were already looking at that before the whole COVID-19 crisis. But this has, of course, um, increased their attention, also in view of a debate that was already started in the EU about, you know, should manufacturing of medicinal products, which, you know, takes place to a large extent in China and India, should part of that somehow uh, be moved to the EU? So I think the whole sort of supply, keeping stock, and even manufacturing discussion will at least
1: continue to take place.
2: And Jane, do you think that there'll be an impact, particularly in the UK
1: now? So I completely agree with all of, of Heinz's comments. I think the one of the things that's interesting at the moment is is obviously the need to take um, a risk-based approach. And that's always been the underlying concept within both EU um, and UK procedures. But but I think that concept is really being pushed and tested and flexed right now. And I think that will lead to not necessarily um, flexibility in how regulatory procedures are approached, but I think that will focus minds again on on have we got the right balance? Are there areas where we can um, sort of push that risk-based approach further? I think also in terms of 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 delivery of how products are used and and healthcare more widely, um, certainly in, in the UK, there's been a huge shift over to patient care remotely wherever possible. And I think that will be a long-term change you know, in, that, in the broader healthcare environment over here as to what is done remotely, what is done on site. You help hospitals and clinicians are having to do a lot more remotely in a way they've never done before. And I think that will continue afterwards, not perhaps to the same level, I'm sure. We'll go back to having many more patient visits. But I think there will be a real shift there that I think what's happening now will really push acceptance of digital healthcare technology in a way that we haven't really had so far.
2: That's going to be, I think, particularly interesting is digital health has been and we've seen it growing immensely over the last years. Digital health really has come to the fore in the last weeks and has proved to be, I think, a, a very important tool in helping Healthcare professionals manage uh, this uh, this explosion of uh, medical issues that they have faced. So it will be interesting to see how that will be how will that how that will be leveraged in the future. It um it has been growing, but I I would I would personally like to think that uh, this will be an impetus to uh, increase it even further.
0: I agree, and we've seen that happen in a number of member states, including the Netherlands, where the authorities have allowed certain telehealth and telemedicine activities to take place which were not or not always allowed before the pandemic um, but i agree that once this is all you know growing and patients and physicians get used to it this may open up more
1: potential for digital health yeah and I, th- I think it will pu- it will push it into context where it was already being looked at and used but but you know it, it will encourage adoption in particularly things like clinical trial settings where I think there was there was there was adoption, but probably quite hesitantly, um, and I think we've seen a real shift now to actually seeing that this can work and it, and it can work in a really actually a really positive way.
2: Is there anything that we haven't yet addressed that you think that is particularly telling in the fair, in the present situation? What about liability? We we talked about this before, and I have to say, it is something that that concerns me a little bit. Because one of the things that we have seen is this wonderful increase in production of certain types of devices, ventilators being a particular example of that. And we have seen the car industry and all sorts of industries stepping up to produce ventilators and supplying those uh, on the basis of the more flexible approach uh, adopted by the authorities. But in the future, how, what would... The responsibility be and with whom would it lie, to ensure that these devices are not that are not retained in the medical context. What would you, if you were um, advising um, either the manufacturer or the hospital, what advice do you think that they should keep? Uh, both parties should keep in mind, considering that these are high value devices and I I suspect there is going to be an attraction of keeping them. What would you advise?
0: I think one of the things to do up front at least is be very clear about what the product is, what it can do, what it cannot do, uh, what its intended purpose is and and whether it complies with whatever standards. So I think information and warning is at least important.
2: And do you think that we would um, have to and fair on the manufacturers a responsibility that we would have a a normal medical device manufacturer has um, substantial substantial traceability obligations um, in relation to their devices. Should we hold manufacturers who are creating them at the moment to the same obligation? I have to say I'm inclined to suggest that maybe we should, given that they are made for specific circumstances, and they may not. I, I could see maybe they may not be as robust in the long term as e- existing devices. Am I too strict in requiring that they should have some traceability obligations?
1: I think, from my perspective, it's it's going to come down to the particular circumstances of the individual device. You know, are we talking about a device that is see is a C mark device, but that it's been extended? beyond its usual C marking purpose? Or are we talking about a device that's never been CE marked and has gone through emergency approval? I, th- I think that balance between the regulatory background and the circumstances of the approval will factor into, into all of those questions about liability.
2: Hain, what do you think? Yeah,
1: I
0: think so too. And um, some degree of, of traceability, vigilance requirements would make sense I'd be interested also to see how competent authorities will look at that. You know, th- th- this is rapidly evolving. I wouldn't be surprised if competent authorities in the EU member states at least initially perhaps take a slightly different views on a country-by-country basis, hopefully resulting in some more harmonised guidance at some point.
1: But interestingly, one of the points that the UK MHRA is asking um, medical device manufacturers when they're applying for emergency marking is what their plan and timeline is for um, achieving full CE marking of the device so that they're clearly already thinking um, along those lines of how long will these uh, these devices approved under an emergency procedure be on the market for um, and how long will it be until uh, a normal CE marked version as it were um, is available on the market so that they already have an eye to that time frame and what may happen next. That's a very pragmatic way to look at it indeed.
0: Well, another another thing that we see, I think, developing in the whole pandemic situation is cross-border healthcare. So we see hospitals in one EU member state taking up patients from another member state simply because there's a lack of capacity in in the other member state. And um, you know, countries help each other; they help out. And I think that um, it will be interesting to keep an eye on that development in the longer term to see if sort of cross-border you know, collaboration between hospitals, um, cross-border patient health care, reimbursement of such patient health care, you know, might might also increase um, as a result of this situation.
1: Oh, that would be an advantage indeed. That would be a benefit. So one of the cross-border issues that we're seeing um, lots of questions on at the moment is around movement of products between markets and are there restrictions um, or authorisations needed. A number of countries have um, have put in place restrictions on moving certain types of equipment out of their markets, um, mainly focused, uh, as we've expected, on medical devices and personal protective equipment. The EU has put in place rules a couple of weeks ago around that where you need to approach the relevant Um, authority in the national member state for approval to move certain protective equipment out of their markets. But we're seeing it more globally as well in terms of needs for authorizations, for example, to export products from China, to bring them into different markets, to move them through EU markets. So as well as looking at the regulatory requirements, I think there's also the, the trade restriction element that needs to be thought through as well. Um, have either of you had questions on uh, relating to companies buying tests to um, to test employees? That's been an area where we've had quite a few questions recently, um, where obviously companies are wanting to do the right thing, but equally wondering about how that impacts on um, availability of, of testing kits more generally, um, how they can potentially buy those tests, and then how you'd actually operate that in practice within a, within a company, um, if you need a healthcare professional to administer the test? What happens when there's a result? How does the company then react to a positive or a negative result of an employee?
2: I have not had that experience. I have had a number of clients asking about the obligation of employees to disclose their medical condition and the possibility of the employer informing the uh, infected employees, colleagues, and the data privacy issues that that arise, that get, to which that gives rise. As a general principle, there is, it appears that the national laws and in individual member states, many member states, could be interpreted as imposing on the employee an obligation to inform, but equally limiting the level to which the employer may disclose the medical condition. That, insofar as the the employer may inform employees that one of their colleagues uh, has the virus but not identify who it is this is something that i think um, a lot of companies are um, grappling with at the moment Hain, what was your experience
0: i haven't seen many of these questions but i fully agree with what was said before i think there's you know both employment law and data privacy concerns should be taken into account and i think it raises very interesting questions there
1: well, thanks EA and Hein, that was really interesting. Um, it was a pleasure to talk to you both. Uh,
2: it was our pleasure. Goodbye.
0: Thank you both. Bye-bye. That's it for today. If you have further questions for EA, Jane, and or reach out via hoggenlovels.com. You can find the link to our COVID-19 information hub for additional updates and further information in the description. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to return with more in about two weeks. So please join us again when we're talking The Cure